So if you have your Bibles, please join me in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33. I was this week I was doing some file cleaning and uh, I, I came across some old Bible college uh, critiques of sermons. We had to preach sermons in class and I, I came across a stack about this thick. And uh, one thing I, I noticed as I read through some of those peer reviews, how long my scripture verses were. It would be like 10 verses. And I think as pastors grow in their understanding, what's happened over time is I've taken a long text, and as you get more accustomed with the scripture, they get shorter and shorter. I think that just comes with time. But I, I found it funny. I think that one was uh, uh, 17 verses, and it took me about 20 minutes to preach it so and the reviews were very kind very generous but uh, anyway we've been looking at an Easter series we'll culminate it next week uh, in the book of Romans Romans chapter 8 verses 9 through 11 and we've been looking at this is how the world lives the world is in bondage to sin but believers, we've been set free. And, and a lot of people, they, they get the Old Testament and the New Testament a little confused. Uh, they think that the Old Testament had no part to play in the New Testament, but nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, and, and, and in fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, when God told Abraham to get out of his country to a land that I will show you, I will make you the father of many nations. And so Abraham left, and uh, we often tend to think that, well, the Old Testament really has nothing to do with the New Testament. But when you go in and you read the book of Romans, and you read a lot of uh, New Testament letters, you find that the Old Testament had a lot to say about the New Testament and what was to come. And so this morning, I want to look at a, what I've entitled, A New Day is Coming. A new day is coming. And let's look at the background here. First of all, the author is Jeremiah. The date was 62 to 580 B.C. In that, uh, in that ballpark. The situation, the people had been in exile for 70 years. They had been in exile for quite a while. And the ultimate thing was that they lacked hope. Think about it. You've been in bondage for 70 years. There is seemingly nothing on the horizon. You have lost every bit of hope that God has just abandoned you and has forsaken you. Have you ever had times like that in your life? When, when you feel like God has abandoned you or forsaken you and you're just kind of left out there? Can you imagine that 70 years? The average person, uh, the average male lives to be about the age of 76. Uh, the women lived to be about 78. So that would be the majority of their lives that they spent without hope. And of course, uh, you could understand why there might be some discouragement. So what Jeremiah did was he wrote to provide hope and return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, which the temple had been decimated before. 
I want to talk today about a new day coming. I don't, many of you are probably not that old to remember the New Deal. FDR, the New Deal. It was really, in 1932, remember the stock market crashed in 1929, and there was a run on the banks, and the whole economy, I remember talking to my grandmother, and she was uh, a young girl growing up during the Great Depression, and she told me a lot of things about how they survived, and so FDR comes along and he says, I'm going to make a new deal with America. And basically, when you think about what Jeremiah writes here, it is a new deal. It's coming. Uh, first of all, he reformed the banks. Secondly, he did emergency relief programs. So uh, he saw that people were broke, that they were out of jobs, they were unemployed. Uh, the banks had basically collapsed. So he created a work relief program. And and there was a lot of good and a lot of bad that came out of these programs. Agricultural programs, there was the CCC, which built a lot of the uh, parks that we have, and they did a lot of work. And if you were a young man, you could sign up and you could do the work and you would get paid. The Social Security program, which I will be a benefactor of in about two years, <laughs> came into existence in 1935. So the downside of this FDR's New Deal was that there was wealth tax and increased tax. They, they taxed everything. So they would tax bubble gum, they would tax movie theater tickets, they, would, they just tax, 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 tax. So it took years, it took about eight, nine years for the country to get out of the recession. But this New Deal actually in a sense, saved America. I, I do believe that. I, I, I look back, but it, it, it wasn't perfect, but it did bring us eventually out of the recession. Again, not perfect, but what God's talking about here, this new deal, this new day will be perfect. It will be foolproof. It will not, it'll, it'll have one string attached, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Now, if you look at the text, notice the fourfold repetition of the word declares the Lord. Verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 32, verse 33, I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. From the least of them to the greatest of them. Verse 34, declares the Lord. So Isaiah is not speaking out of his own repertoire. He is speaking for God, and God is speaking through Jeremiah. So what Jeremiah basically says is he mentions here the new covenant and talks about God's action. Notice verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Behold is a simple way of hand. Hey, look, look here, look here. Everybody look up here. Thank you, you're all looking, that's good. That's, that basically carries the same idea, look here. The days are coming, think about it. Isaiah gives the people hope. It took 600 years 
for Jesus to actually appear on the scene. So during the 600 years, at least the people have, an, have a message or a, a thought of hope. This new is uh, hadash in the uh, Hebrew language. It means recent, not old, or something not previously known. So Isaiah, or Jeremiah is saying here, there is something new coming that you had no idea was coming. Quite amazing. And this covenant is the Hebrew word for breit, which means to cut an agreement. You say, well, pastor, what, what does that mean? Well, the New Testament is actually a covenant. And the Old Testament is actually a covenant. God is going to cut a new deal with not only the nation of Israel, but he's going to cut a new deal with uh, everyone, Jew and Gentile. And what makes this so interesting? This word breit that Jeremiah mentions, it is actually in the sense of a marriage contract. After all, he goes on to say, even though I was their husband. So what Jeremiah is saying is that the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai, which we'll talk about in just a minute, on Mount Sinai actually married God. And when we come to the New Testament, what did we learn? That we are the bride of Christ. Christ is our husband, and he will not leave his bride unprotected or ignored. And so he says, look, there's a day coming when God's going to cut a new covenant. It is a marriage agreement. And it's going to en en encompass not only the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, but it's going to encompass the entire world. If we look at the Old Testament map here, you have Israel in the north, you have the southern kingdom of Judah. There's coming a day, nation of Israel, when I'm going to cut a new contract with you. Hebron, Samaria, Shechem, all of these places will come under this new, this new covenant, this new deal that God is going to make. Now, it's quite amazing to me how many Jews missed the Messiah. There are Messianic Jews, and I, I, I know several of them, and they, they are sold out for Jesus. But it's amazing that they would miss this new deal. But the point to note here is that God took the initiative. God was the one that took the initiative. When we fast forward to the New Testament, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. God gave. God had to take the initiative because left to our own defenses, we would flounder and fail. Nobody is good enough to get into the kingdom of God. Nobody in this room or listening to me uh, via Facebook or Messenger, uh, none of us are good enough to get into the kingdom of God. And that leads me to the second point, <clears throat> man's failure. Look at verse 32. I'm going to give you an overview here. And I, I like putting pictures up there because I know you get tired of me screaming and yelling and you like to see something nice up there, so we'll do that. All right. Not like the covenant, Breit, and that was a marriage covenant. 
considered a marriage covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So notice, the, notice the language here. God is directing and leading the Israelites out. Much like you men, <clears throat> you would hold your wife's hand when you're walking through the mall. And same thing. There's a tenderness here of, of God. So let's go back and do a little quick history. First of all, they were in the... Uh, they were in Egyptian slavery for 350 to 430. It just depends on which scholar you read. But it was a hard time for the nation of Israel. They had gone into bondage in Egypt. You would think, you would think that they would finally get it and nail it down that God is their husband and that he would protect them. So they, they go through this horrific period of time where they're beaten, where they're battered, where they're abused. And then God says, at some point during that period, God says, Moses, take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Notice, man's failure, God's action. The nation of Israel was in bondage, God had made a covenant through Moses, and Moses before the burning bush, <clears throat> who am I that you would send me? And God says, you're going to be the one, and you're going to lead the people of Israel out of bondage. And amazing. Ten plagues, the tenth one. Moses says, put the blood over the doorpost, and the angel of uh, the, the spirit will come through, and if the blood is not over your doorpost, you're going to lose your firstborn. So the Israelites, they put the blood over the doorpost, and this is all encompassed in this, not like the covenant I made with your fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. Then, after this happens, Pharaoh's firstborn dies. He's distraught. Moses go. But then Moses, or Pharaoh, has a little change of heart, and he says, let's go get them. So Moses crosses the Red Sea. Many of us know the story, or not the story, the actual events, but many of us know that when Moses crossed the Red Sea and the nation of Israel was safely across, and Pharaoh's army was going through, God closed up the sea and destroyed the Egyptians. God took them by the hand and led them out. He's protecting his bride, even though he knows that the bride is going to fail him time and time again. He's protecting them. And I, I'll say this, i say this to all of us, God goes with you even when we seem to not be following him. We are protected by the hand of God. My covenant, Jeremiah continues, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them out by, led them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. The Hebrew word here, perav rish, 
means to violate an agreement and so nullify the contract. How could you do that? I mean, seriously. How could you see the hand of God closing the Red Sea, leading them out of Egypt? How could you possibly break that covenant? This is what happened, and I love this, I love this picture because it kind of shows. So you remember when Moses goes up to the mountain? He's up there for 40 days, and he's in the presence of God. And this happens. They build a golden calf, Aaron leading the charge. And what I, what I was thinking about this week is that God and Moses were right up here on Mount Sinai preparing a, a contract. Nobody, nobody can ever get to a place where they are righteous apart from Jesus Christ. Nobody can. And so the, new, the, the old covenant is screaming, we need something new, a, a way of making people right with God. And so here, that just struck me. Here you've got this golden calf, which they probably had to give all their, their gold to because Moses was delayed for 40 days. Amazing. They broke it. He also says, notice here in verse 32, my covenant which they broke though I was their husband. Let me, let me put it this way. The nation of Israel had committed spiritual adultery against God. A God who loved them, who cared for them, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and yet they would break the very covenant that God established with them. Quite amazing. Well, this new covenant will be radical. This new covenant will be radical. Look at verse 33. So we have the new covenant will be radical. It will be totally different than the old covenant in a lot of ways. Notice verse 33a. For this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write my law on them their hearts so if you could think of it this way here you have external commandments many of us have seen the ten commandments but it's not just those it's everything in the Pentateuch but you have these external commands do this and I will bless you now it is true that there was some heart involved in it but you look at those commandments. I honor my mother and my father. I don't bear false witness. I, I, I worship God. But those are all external. What happens is in the New Testament, the law comes inward. Jesus said, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look upon a woman, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. 
So one was external, one is internal. Jesus does this over and over and over again where he is bringing the law inwardly. And it's going to be something that God is going to do a work in our hearts. I will, and this, this word Torah, law, which is Torah, is a reference to the Torah. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the second law. Deuter is uh, two. Anomy is law. So you have second law where God rewrote them back for Israel. Here you have uh, just a picture. There was always promises to Abraham. Notice right here. Here it is. Abraham came before the law was given. So Paul writes in Galatians, the law came 430 years after the promise. What was the promise? The promise was to Abraham. Who is the father of our faith? I mean, I know Jesus is our savior, but who is the father of our faith? It's Abraham. The law was put in place to the Jews so that it might lead them to Christ where they can be saved. The law was never meant for salvation. You could not get right with God because we were incapable of keeping the entire law. And so God had, even before the foundations of the world, uh, world, Ephesians says, God sent, had a plan where he would send Jesus to the cross. It's, it's not like God is sitting back here and he's looking over history and he's going, oh no, what am I going to do? God knew every step of the way. God's outside of time. But he sees everything, and God, that's what makes him God. Somebody said, well, how can God know that? That's, that's what makes him God. He knows that. So here is this, the covenant, binding alliance that joins two or more parties, often with conditions. And in the case of the Old Testament, always with conditions. When we come to the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there is this, this whole transformation that is taking place when we get to the New Testament. That is why, and I've said this before, John the Baptist is mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, he's preparing the way for the Lord. So when John the Baptist comes on the scene and he starts baptizing people, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day go, wait a minute. This guy, it looks like he's starting a new covenant. If you go back to Exodus chapter 19, you will find that Moses, before they get to Mount Sinai and God speaks, Moses is down making the people wash their garments. It is the same process. God is now taking the same process that is involved in, in uh, Genesis and Exodus all the way through. He comes to the New Testament and starts the exact same process. That's why people were upset with John the Baptist. This guy is starting a new covenant. They knew the process. And they didn't like it. And so here you have, here you have a picture of God saying, okay, this is put into place so that it is put into place so that someday these, Isra uh, these Israelites and 
the uh, Gentiles will come to saving faith in Christ. He says, I will put my law within them, kerev, inward parts. You think about Psalm. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Here, God says to the nation of Israel, I will put my law and I will write it on their hearts. It's going to be in, in them. If God created our inward parts, as the psalmist writes, then surely God has the ability to put the law within us. When you first get saved, saved meaning when you first come to saving faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you and you begin growing in your faith. And as you grow in your faith, you begin to learn more and more about salvation, the salvation that you have. Martin Luther once called it simultaneously sinner and saint. But here he says, I will write it on their hearts. Katov, katov. And that Hebrew word means to engrave or inscribe. Some type of spiritual writing begins to take place in our heart. Quite amazing. This is Old Testament. This isn't New Testament. This is Old Testament. And he will write them, lave, and in the, uh, the Hebrew, or the Greek, it's cardia, but here, lave, the soul or the innermost being. We seem to think that the Old Testament is foreign to the New Testament, yet the Old Testament writer Jeremiah hit salvation on its head, says that God's going to do something inwardly. It's going to be written spiritually on our hearts and at the very fabric of our soul and our being. Then we will know God. It's amazing. And people miss this. They go, wow, I had no idea. What's right there? Jeremiah's writing, writing about it. F.B. Huey in his commentary writes this, the radical nature of this change is emphasized elsewhere by speaking of a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel 18.31, Ezekiel 36.26, Ezekiel 11.19, Jeremiah 24.7, and Jeremiah 32.39. It is, it is to be performed by God's spirit and can be called in the New Testament terms regeneration or rebirth. Jeremiah writing to a people that were hurting Jeremiah writing to a people that were without hope and now Jeremiah says there's a new day coming there's a new day coming and it's going to be radical it's going to be inward not outward it's not going to be a list of do's and don'ts, although there will be do's and don'ts. But it's not ones that say, okay, I did this, did this, did this, did this, and as long as my good outweighs my bad, I'm in. Even our best is as filthy rags before a holy God. 
there has to be a radical change. Let me tell you, politics will never change a country. Oh, you say, well, it will change the country. Oh, for three or four years until another government comes in. What will change the country is when the church begins preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who are sinners that need to be saved and come into a relationship with God. And then the nation will begin to change. This is bigger than a Democrat or Republican or Independent. The only way to have real change is God coming inwardly and radically changing the heart of a person who was once lost. The writer of Hebrews saw this looking back and he goes, yeah, Jeremiah was right on it. Hebrews 8, in speaking of this new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete, growing old, is ready to vanish away. In this case, the writer was writing to Jews who had rejected Jesus Christ. If you go back and you read the letter of Hebrews, it's all about Jesus being better than Moses, Jesus being better than angels, Jesus being the all-one-time priest who offered a full sacrifice for the for the whole sins of the world and those that trust in him, saved. He made one payment for all. I've said this before. I will never apologize for it. But I'll say it again. You can only be saved as many times as Christ died. Christ died once. You can only be saved once. I've mentioned this many times, I'm sure. Poor lady in my first church, every Sunday walked the aisle. I just want to make sure I'm saved. Boy, Satan. Satan is crafty. I'll just say it this way. If you've acknowledged that you're a sinner and you've asked God to forgive you of your sin, and you've asked Jesus Christ to come into your life and be your Lord and Savior. You're saved. There's not other hoops to jump through. Jesus Christ jumped through the hoops for you. So you couldn't do it. The Old Testament, they couldn't do it. God knew that. And he said, Jeremiah, give them hope. I know it's going to be 600 years. But I want you to tell them there's a new day coming. It's going to be radical in, in which I am going to change the entire world. This is why it is so important for us who know the truth to share the gospel and do it lovingly. Do it lovingly. I love this text because it really gets me going. When that happens, when this new day comes, which, praise be to God, you all realize how fortunate we are to be living in the day of dispensational grace. When you trust in Christ, you are positionally righteous before God. 
all of your sin, past, present, and future, is nailed to the cross, and you bear it no more. You struggle with it. You fight it. But when God looks at you, do you know what he sees? He sees his son. And that is security. And that is where our hope lies. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness, not mine. Praise be to God that the day that I cross the finish line, I'll see Jesus face to face. Oh, gosh. Can't wait to see that. It's amazing. Jeremiah, I, I stopped it here because I knew I would get really long-winded if I kept running with it, but when that happens, that internal work of God happens in the heart of a believer. Notice the outcome. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So many, so many teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. A man has a hundred sheep has 99 and one has strayed. Jesus says, I'll go get that one and bring him back. Jesus upended the religious elite of a day. What is he doing? You cannot heal on the Sabbath. Why does this man eat with sinners? Because Jesus came to redeem sinners. He didn't come for the spiritual elite, so to speak. He came for the broken and the, and the downcast and the sinful. That's who Jesus came for, and that's who our church needs to be going to. I don't know. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We live in that day now. That's the day that we live in. I want you to understand this morning, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're his child. That is secure. And I tried to explain to this poor lady that came up. I knew her name. I still remember her name. But I said, how many times did Christ die for you? She said, once. And I said, that's all you can be saved. I don't know. It was that church believed in work salvation. And I'm actually surprised they kept me around. But we had a lot of conversions in that church. You know why? Because they've never heard the truth. The two twins at back row crying one Sunday morning, we had no idea. Breaks my heart. In this fellowship, in this fellowship time, I will be their God and they shall be my people. When that happens... When, when that happened, and it did to you and me, when that happened, God encompasses us, and at that point, he begins to write his laws and everything that he wants us to do. He begins writing that on our hearts, and it's as we grow and as God begins to mold us that we become more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world. And that was radical. That was radical in the Old Testament. 
Good little video here. Hope the sound's good on it. We are like clay, static, unrecognizable, nothing. A formless mass with no direction, no purpose, no meaning. We are like clay, pliable, movable, moldable. In the hands of the Creator, we can be changed, made beautiful, given life. Nothing becomes something extraordinary. The transformation takes time. The process is tedious, difficult, painstaking. But soon, we see the beginnings of something wonderful. The formless takes shape. The unrecognizable finds its identity. The meaningless is given purpose. From nothing comes beauty. We are like clay, each piece different than the next, given unlimited potential in the hands of the potter.